Uh, can I ask you a question? When was the last time you went to your optometrist? That may seem like a weird question. I have uh, been to my optometrist nearly my whole life. And if you know any of my story, uh, you know that's been a lot. Uh, I've had a lot of trouble with my eyes over the years. So I go right now about once a year. And I've got one appointment coming up this coming week. And I was thinking about the process that I go through because it kind of compares to something I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, There is this point in the optometrist's office when you are sitting there, you go in, a nice little uh, sweet young lady uh, asks a few questions and updates all your information, and then she says to you, okay, now, Mr. Lover, you're going to need to take out your contacts, which always seemed funny to me because you're trying to make the eye doctor feel bad. I mean, I, I am blind without my contacts. Can't see anything, really. But I always oblige and take contacts out, and I sit in the chair, and then I just have this kind of moment of waiting. I can't see anything. Everything is kind of fuzzy. People are walking around looking like trees, if you get that Bible reference. I, I just got nothing that I can see. Pretty soon, uh, the door opens, and a, a man walks in, who I assume is my optometrist. At least it sounds like him. And he knows that I don't have my contacts in, and I can't see. And so he, he puts a device over my face. Uh, if you've been to the optometrist, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know the exact name of this device. You know what I'm talking about? It's... Yeah, it kind of looks like this. Okay. Now, my optometrist takes that device, whatever it is, and he, he flips a few dials and he turns a few things, and all of a sudden, I can see. It's a moment of clarity. There are times like that in life when, when things seem a little fuzzy. You're not exactly sure the full picture And then God does a few things. The Holy Spirit turns a few dials, and all of a sudden, it's clear. This morning, what I'm going to talk about was a moment of clarity for me about what we're talking about in this series on bedrock. Now, this is our series. If you haven't been here before, you can go catch it on Vimeo or find the podcast. But essentially, we're talking about the unchanging truths in an ever-changing world. And, and that's been, the, the, the change that's been happening has been more and more frequent as we go forward. And it's easy for, especially for people of faith, to, to feel kind of fuzzy about things. How did we get here? How has the world changed so topsy-turvy so quickly? It, it's a, a little bit unsettling. Sometimes it's a lot unsettling when it affects you and your family. And so this series has been designed to kind of take us back to Genesis. It's not a verse-by-verse study. It's actually some principles that we learn from Genesis. First is that you got to start by building on the rock. We talked about the wise and foolish builders. Then we said Genesis points us to start with God. And, and how the, the word God and God said repeated over and over again in Genesis 1 and 2. And last week we talked about the important understanding that God created us, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so this morning, we're going to continue back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I hope to bring you to a moment of clarity like I had as we talked about this week. I'd like to ask you to stand, as we have been doing, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, which is just a little bit of overlap from last week, but Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. I'm going to ask us to read it. 
together. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of God. You may be seated. So today we're on foundational truth number three, and that's this. God designed the family. Now we see in Genesis 1 very clearly and early on that God began building the family. In Genesis 1, we, we see again and again God using the phrase, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But there's, there's a point at which the scripture says it was not good. And what was not good was the fact that man was alone. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that it was not good. And then it says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, it is not good, I'm sorry, rather, Genesis 1.27 says, male and female, he created them. So he brought someone into the picture. Now, Genesis chapter 2 tells us more specifically about the creation of human beings. Some people say, well, there's two creation stories in Genesis. No, that's not true. Genesis 1 gives us a big picture view. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we focus in on the very best part of God's creation, which is you and I. We talked about last week. Uh, I, I'll give you an example of this. My, my son is currently on uh, his senior trip. The class went overseas to Italy, okay? So every day he's checking in with us. Now, we know about the whole trip. We know about the itinerary. We know everything he's doing. And when we check in with him via FaceTime, he likes to tell us about the gelato, <laughs> He's in all these historic works and this amazing history and all this architecture and paintings. But to him, the really best part is the gelato. Okay, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're getting this really big. We know the whole scene of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, God's telling us about the gelato or the genesis of human beings. Now, we're in Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to read, we're not going to read it out loud, but I want you to read along with me in Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 is where we are. And it's, it's telling us again, focusing in on the creation. It says, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. All of these animals he's naming, he's got this perfect world. It doesn't get any better than right here in Genesis chapter 1. And yet, there's no one like Adam. There's not someone compatible. There's not someone equal to him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep, the message says, caused divine anesthesia to fall upon the man And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Now, now, 
We've, we've learned so far that there's no one quite like Adam in all the created order. But, and, and he was the first to create it in God's image. But the second is there's no one created quite like Eve. And she's made in God's image too, but she's not made from the dirt. She's made from the rib. She's built by God to complement Adam fully, completely, in every way. Uh, one poet once wrote that, Adam, that Eve was not made from his head to rule over him. She was not made from his feet that he should walk all over her. But she was made from his rib, his side, that she should be beside him to help him and to protect his heart. I like how that's description of who Eve is. She's a special creation. Now, together, they are quite a team. They are built to complement one another. Now, I know you're looking at my PowerPoint, and you're asking me the question. I know you're already asking the question of me, because some of you just think in critical ways all the time, and you're saying, why does Adam have a tattoo? And I say to you, you make the PowerPoint. You find an appropriate picture of Adam and Eve before the fall where they're clothed in the right areas and not clothed in the other areas. And I tell you, say to you, that is the best picture you can find. But it's good. It reminds us that Adam and Eve were not made individually. They were designed to be a team together. He is tough. And she is tender. He is strength and might. And she is gentleness and care. He is protector. And she is nurturer. He's more task-driven. She's more relationship-driven. And he is reason and ration. And she is intuition and feeling. His brain is segmented, divided all up into sections, and her brain is all tied together. And God brings these two perfectly different people into one divine covenant called marriage. And that is marriage. That is the only marriage. And forevermore, that is the blessing that God intended marriage to be. You see, he made marriage to be a blessing. The scripture says God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Marriage is a divine covenant. It's, it began in the mind of God. It's God's design by origin. It was the very first covenant that God made. And it is a covenant. It's a lifetime commitment between one male and one female for one lifetime. And in this beautiful covenant, we see two people becoming one. Becoming one physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. And from two people becoming one, that bond, that sacred divine bond, can produce three, four, five, 
however many children that couple can produce. The first marriage is described in Genesis chapter 2. Albeit, uh, I don't like this picture as much. It's got all the animals and plants in the right places. Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25. I want you to look at it again. We were just on page 3 there in your Bible if you don't have a, don't know where Genesis chapter 2 is. And look at verses 24 and 25 again and look at the blessings that pour out of this divine covenant. Genesis 2, starting in verse 24. Therefore a man, uh, to me this implies uh, maturity. A marriage is made for a person who's ready to step up into caring about someone more than they care about themselves. Secondly, it says the the man shall leave his father and mother. I think that implies that marriage requires some sort of boundaries, that that there's going to be a, a, a new family. This is what Steve would always say in his marriage ceremonies. He would say, a new home was created in all the earth. And this is not man's doing, this is God's doing. And so when a, a new family is formed, the man leaves his father and mother. And someone called me on that one time and said, well, it doesn't say the woman left her father. I'm not getting into all that, okay? What I'm saying here is a new family is formed. And that requires some boundaries. And, and to hold fast to his wife, that tells us that marriage requires commitment No matter how long you married, whether one year or ten years or fifty years or sixty years, marriage requires holding fast to one another through the good, through the bad, and yes, even through the ugly. And it says they shall become one flesh, which reminds us that the marriage covenant is the place for love and sexuality and relationship. And all of those things are good. Those are a blessing from God. Somehow the world hijacked talking about sex and took what God intended to be the blessing within the marriage covenant. And within the marriage covenant, there is nothing wrong with it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing physically, emotionally, spiritually, and so forth. And then it says the man and his wife were both naked or naked, depending on how you say it, and we're not ashamed. Now, this implies vulnerability and security. We're not just talking about physical nakedness, so I'm sure there's part of that, but but in the marriage relationship, there is a vulnerability with one another that you can be fully and completely 100% yourself without any... Barriers or pretenses or pretending. And you can be in absolute secure trust that your partner will not abuse that vulnerability. And so with this team together, they form what we call the family. And this is a good thing too. The scripture says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Family, if you think about it, is the first God-formed group. Family preceded nations and kingdoms and governments and Israel and even the church. There were no groups of people before Genesis 2. God formed this foreordained covenant of people in group. 
and it's a blessing. And God uses the family to bring creation from chaos into order. He looks around this perfect world. He says, fill it and subdue it. I I don't know about you, but man cannot do that by himself. Creation is in chaos. God needs his servant to bring order to it. And so he forms the family to do that. The family brings creation from chaos to order because it reproduces. It begins to fill the earth and bring forth the generations. Uh, the killer of every daily Bible reading plan is the list of the begats and the genealogies and the lists. But what, in those lists, we see something really powerful, and that is the family growing and building and reproducing and doing what God designed the family to do, which is to fill and reproduce and fill the world. Secondly, it orders us. Within the structure of the family, each person is given a helper. So you don't have to do it by yourself. Each person is given a role, a purpose, a function within that group. You have a job to do. And the scriptures get more clear on that in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to hear more about that, come back for Sunday night study tonight. And in addition to having a helper, in addition to having a role, every person within the family structure has a role model. To look to and aspire to. So little boys learn what it means to be a dad. And little girls learn what it means to be a mother. And little boys learn how to treat a lady. Little girls learn what to expect from a man. If you think about how it orders us and how it orders society, it's the family is crucial to teaching and raising and training children. And so because it reproduces, because it orders us, because it orders society, if you think, if you just take a step back from every headline and from every bad thing going on in the world and you take a big picture look, I will tell you that it is my contention That every single solitary societal problem can be rooted back in the collapse or the dysfunction of the family. You see, God blessed the family to be a blessing. That's what our Father does to bring order to chaos. But but now here's my moment of clarity with me, and I just need you to follow along. And you're going to have to chew on this, so I hope you'll... Pay close attention. Just as God used the family to be a blessing, to bring order to chaos, the enemy of God attacks the family, attempting to bring chaos from order, to put that which is orderly and functional and practical and helpful and blesses the world and use it to hurt people. And he uses it to bring chaos into order. So I want you to think about this for just a second. If, if you were the enemy of God, what would you do? If I hated God with everything that I had, but I have this problem. See, I can't beat God because he's, well, he's God. And so how would I, if I were the enemy of God, how would I 
how would I get at God? I think the answer is, you get at those whom God loves. And so if I were the enemy, and I'm trying to get at God, but I can't get at God because he's God, then I'd, I'd go straight for the family. And I think this is where we are. You see, if I were the enemy of God, I'd start here. And he's going to do exactly that in Genesis chapter 3. He's going to work to separate man from God. That's step one. That's the first thing he wants with you, is to separate you from God. To separate you from your relationship with creator and created. And he's going to work as hard as he can to separate those two. And we, of course, know in Genesis 3 he's successful. And if I were the enemy of God and I hated God and I wanted to get at God, but I couldn't get at God because he's God... I'd try to get at those he loves, and so then I'd, then I'd try to separate what God brought together. Jesus said, let no man separate what God has brought together in Matthew 19. And so God, God brought these two together, and so if I were the enemy of God, I'd try to separate a man from his wife. I'd work to divide the household and split the foundation of the rocks. And I'll tell you... Uh, He's good at that. I want to be very careful here. I'm telling you a personal story, and I, I got to walk carefully here because you, you know this. I love my parents. My parents are not married. And I can tell you the moment, the moment when my eight year old world came undone was when my dad walked in after a fight and kissed me on the forehead and left. And, and that was in a time, and I don't know whether my parents bought this or not, but the world began saying, you know, divorce really isn't that bad. It really doesn't hurt. We can, we can have an amicable divorce. It's fine and it doesn't hurt anybody. And you need to know that is a lie. And I'm not trying to be real hard on divorced people, okay? I know we have some, and please hear my heart on this. Most of the people I talk to, especially those who've been through divorce, will tell you it is the most gut-wrenching, soul-tearing, painful part of their life. And the enemy is good at what he does. And so if you're sitting here in a pew or you're watching online and you're thinking that, you know, I just don't think this marriage is going to work. Let me plead with you. Let me beg you. Hold fast to your wife. Hold fast to your husband. Don't give up. You need some counseling? We've got a great counselor. Will's great at that. He was telling me he needs more to do, so bring him. <laughs> Hold on. Ask the elders of the church to pray with you. Do whatever it takes, but hold fast to your marriage, please. Don't let the enemy in. All right. Then I'd, I'd work to keep babies from entering the world. We talked about that last week. I'd try to wreck the womb where God 
does his divine knitting. Then I'd encourage people to get married who can never fulfill the family covenant, who can never multiply, who can never reproduce. And then if I, if I really hated God, I'd, I'd whisper to their sons to remove parts of their bodies that will one day potentially make them fathers. And I'd deceive their daughters to remove the body parts which will one day make them mothers. We see this happening all over our world. But I think it's easy to get caught up in the focus on the people and the politics and all of that stuff. And I want to ask you to step back and say, who is at work here? It's not God. And this is why God's people need to speak the truth in love. Because that's the last thing I'd try to do. I'd try to get God's people to accept it. I'd try to get God's people to be okay with it. Or at least be silent about it. And so knowing the enemy's strategy. Here's the question I want to ask of us. What can we do? What can I do? And this is a spiritual battle. Okay, The enemy's on the attack. You're not reading scripture, you're not paying attention to the fact that we have a real enemy. He's not only real, he's mean. Number one, I want you to pray often. And this is not the preacher telling you to say a prayer before the meal. I'm not against praying before meals. But I want you to begin to pray in terms of spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6 you're following along, turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 12. Catch this. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, now, can, now note this. This is so important. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He tells us to put on your battle armor, and we know that from every VBS ever done, I think. All the the, the spiritual armor of God, truth and righteousness and faith in God and salvation in Christ and the word of God. But at the end of that, look at verse 18. What does Paul say? When you put on all, when you're all armed for battle, and not a, f- a flesh and blood battle, but a spiritual battle, look what he says in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It is so easy to get caught up in the flesh and blood, to see the news headlines, to to hit on the clickbait, and to get all stirred up and fired up about what's going on in the world. And, And the first and the most important thing we need to do is pray. To enter the spiritual battle, to see this as a spiritual battle, and to somehow, in some way, I don't know how it works, but when you pray with all intensity, I imagine these spiritual chess pieces moving and advancing on the board, and moving and affecting things that we don't see, and that we can't fully understand. I've had a 
couple of calls lately. They've been grandparents. One was a particularly heartbreaking one. He said, I've, I have a granddaughter who's convinced she's a boy. And her parents are encouraging it. And her teachers are encouraging it. And her counselors are encouraging it. And she's calling me and she's saying, what do I do? What do I do? I don't want to lose the relationship with my granddaughter. But how do I, how, what am I supposed to do? And what I told her is what I'm telling you right now. I said, ma'am, I don't know the specifics of your situation. But with everything I've got, I would tell you to pray. And find as many godly people as you can to pray for your granddaughter. That is the very best thing. That's not the only thing, but it's the very best, most powerful thing we can do. And it's the first place we should go to pray, to engage in this on a spiritual battle. Number two, I want to encourage you to love biblically. I think the most unkind and unloving thing you can do is to bless that which God does not call a blessing. See, the world's definition of love is this. Accept everything I do. Accept everything I am. Don't question it. Don't try to change it. Just accept it. That's love. But that's not the biblical definition of love. Yes, Christians are to speak the truth in love. That's true. But what is love? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 and let the scriptures speak clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's not just a passage for weddings. It's in there for our teaching. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but verse 6 says this. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love what's true. Love righteousness. Encourage righteousness. Love is not acceptance of everything. Number three. May we honor the truth. Jesus said in John 8, 32, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we've got to honor what's true. That's why we spend so much time back in Genesis to realign our compasses, to know that God made us male and female so we can understand when the world says there's an infinite number of genders that that's not true. It alters God's design. It adds chaos to the next generation. I've heard this from, from teachers. I know this to be true. There are teachers who are told we can't say all right, boys and girls. Because that's too exclusive. Instead, we have to say all right, friends. All right, students. Anything but male and female. Let me ask you. What do you think is happening in the hearts of those little kindergartners and first graders who aren't even being affirmed that they're male or female aren't even being told 
that they are, what their DNA says. So don't add to the chaos. You don't have to be rude or cruel or mean. We shouldn't be. But I don't think Christians need to post your pronouns. You know why? Because it, it gives in to the ideology that gender's as changeable as your shoes and your socks. You can change your gender like I changed my tie. Don't lie. And don't be a part of false delusions. And don't help other people to believe lies. Don't alter God's reality or His truth. Don't add chaos to disorder. Now you can do that in a very loving way. Number four. Magnify marriage. Now I'm be careful here. If you're single, if you're a widow, please hear me out. I'm not excluding you. You're not a lesser person. Hebrews 13.4 says to let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. My goodness, so much there. But we ought to honor marriage. We ought to let marriage be held in honor by all. If you're a single person and you're getting serious with someone, don't move in together. That's just skipping steps. You're, you're acting like married people without being married people. You're not in covenant. I will say to you, if someone proposes the idea that we should move in together, they aren't fully committed to you if they don't want to be married. How could they? They're saying to you, I would like your naked body, but not your naked soul. I would like as much of you as I can have for me without the obligation of full commitment. Living together doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor your partner. It only honors yourself. And if you're married, stay married. We already talked about this. Cherish your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Put your marriage first, not your kids. I know some, I hear married people say it. I put my kids first. You shouldn't do that. It's not wise. Put your marriage first. That's what your kids need. Your kids need to see mom and dad as husband and wife. Your kids need to see that. Water your marriage daily. Go on dates. Get away. If you have to, get counseling. Marriage is a sacred circle. Between you and your spouse, do not let anyone else in the circle, real, visual, the only other entity allowed in this circle is God himself. Cherish marriage. Hold it in honor. Celebrate anniversaries. Honor people who've been married a long time. Number five, have babies. <laughs> this is the part where people are going, finally, something practical I can use. Yeah, that's great. Did you hear that, honey? <laughs> have babies. 
And we've had babies going in and out this morning. That's great. Some people are bothered by that. Nah, it doesn't bother me. That's the sign of a healthy church. That's the sign of growing church. That's a blessing. The world hates babies. The church should be the place where we love and cherish babies. In fact, by the way, I know Anita's looking for some help. Uh, if, you need, if you love holding babies, if you love being with babies, talk to Anita. Anita, raise your hand real quick. Okay, so if you need to help in the nursery, if you'd like to do that, she's uh, looking for a few extra good people who, who love babies. Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So go multiply. Children are a blessing. Have as many as you can. Now, what if you can't have children? That's okay. Adopt. Foster. Because the world needs that too. Love and protect and nurture and train and raise those babies. Kelsey, you're doing a good job. Keep Keep raising those babies to know the Lord. Lastly, may we celebrate family. If your parents are still alive, call them. Because you don't know how much longer they'll be alive. Call your parents. Attend weddings. Go to showers. Honor anniversaries. Teach and babysit kids. Go to family camp. In fact, uh, Paul, Paul, or is Paul, is Paul in here? No. Okay. Nope. Where are you? I see a point. Finger. There we go. There we go. Keep going. Paul! Yay! Paul, stand up for me. Paul's directing family camp. Family's a great opportunity. You should go to family camp, sign up today, register. But here's what I want to tell you. Maybe you're past the family stage, or maybe you feel like you couldn't go to family camp. Here's a cool idea. I think you should go find Paul and say, I'd like to give a scholarship to five families to go to family camp. I think that'd be awesome. That's a way to bless families and to celebrate families. Okay, you can sit down, Paul. Um, these are six practical things you can do and six practical things that I hope you'll do because Satan is on the move. He's on the attack of families He's trying to separate that which God brought together. And so, hopefully this morning we understand what a blessing family is, and we support it, we celebrate it, we love it. We encourage marriages and families personally and collectively. All right, there's one more thing for me to do, and that is this. I want to invite you in to be a part of the spiritual family of God, the church. God says that marriage is a good thing in Ephesians 5, but what he says is it reflects Christ and the church. The biological family is a great blessing. The spiritual family, far, far better thing. And so if you're not a part of the spiritual family, you say, well, how do I know? Well, I simply ask you, have you obeyed Jesus? Have you believed in him? Have you been buried with him in baptism? If you haven't done that, you're not part of the spiritual family yet, but you can make that change today. In just a minute, we're going to sing some songs, and our elders are going to go to the back. If you would like to be a part of the spiritual family of God, and you'd like to be added to the church, you can do that. Go find one of our elders. They'll help you with that or any other spiritual need that you might have. Let's together stand and sing.